This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, a culture critic for Slate. And joining me today are Michael Agar, a Slate editor. Welcome, Michael. Welcome. Hi. (laughs) And uh, Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Welcome, Troy. Hey, Megan. So today we are discussing um, the quote-unquote dark horse winner of the National Book Award, Lord of Misrule, a novel by Jamie Gordon. And um, we're, we're joking here about this quote-unquote dark horse winner because the book is, it's about horses. It's about race horses, among other things. Um, it's set at a, a seedy racetrack, Indian Mound Downs, which is downriver from Wheeling, West Virginia. And there are a lot of things we can say about this book. One of the things I think we could say right away is that it's, it's very much a, a book that's portraying a microcosm. It's a deep look at a small world. And it raises a lot of interesting questions about style and plot and, and other things. We probably, you know, we were just talking about the fact that we probably wouldn't have been doing this book had it not won the National Book Award because it didn't sell very many copies. It was published by a small press and it had escaped our notice thus far uh, before before the award. But there's a lot we should say. I, I, think, mean, I think it escaped everyone's notice. It escaped everyone's notice, <laughs> not just ours. I think except for trade publications, it didn't get reviewed anywhere until after it was nominated for the award. Yes. At which point it received uh, a, a, um, a favorable notice from Jane Smiley in the Washington Post and a yes. good write-up in the Daily Racing Form. Oh, I'm surprised I missed that since I do like to check the Daily Racing Form out. Um, but it also received a f- big, big piece in the New York Times by Janet Maslin, I think, who sort of made allusion to the fact that she had not seen this book or read this book. So... It's probably one of the most uh, long shot winners of the National Book Award that's ever been. We, you were saying, yeah, that, like Michael. a twenty-five to one, a twenty-five to one, maybe even a fifty to one, <laughs> a fifty to one. Um, we should have, we should have been betting. So let's just start by saying, what did you guys? I mean, this is. Um, I think our listeners are probably curious. You know, should, first of all, should they read this book? Second of all, what is it like? What is this book like? What did you guys? Did you guys enjoy it? What could we say about it? Uh, I began by disliking it. I came around to it some. There are a lot of vivid images uh, worth uh, hanging on to. There are a lot of vivid images that are unfortunately memorable in their um, <laughs> in their their um, what's the color beyond purple? Vermilion, <laughs> perhaps. No. Um, and there's a, it's got sort of a pulpiness that I think works pretty well for the first maybe 75% of the book. I think the the, the end is a little bit um, florid for my taste. Uh, a little bloody, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. yeah. A lot of blood. Uh, I mean, you definitely like, turn the first page, and it's very much like, you know, capital L, literary, um, you know, throwing into... You're into a microcosm, a, a, this sort of horse racing subculture, as you point out, but also a kind of... You know, a, a very sort of almost interior hermetic writing. You know, it's like 
like this I'm, we're not going to explain this world to you and we're going to i'm going to use like strange cold mountain-esque nouns that you know <laughs> antiquated <laughs> that you might not have heard of um and so it's definitely a you know a trip down a, a back road of, of sorts uh right away but but i have to say like, like you Troy, the, the book did um sort of sneak up on me and and kind of won me over at the end, uh, what were your impressions, Megan? Your general thoughts? I mean, yeah, I mean, I love your description of it as a trip down a back road. I Let's see. For me, it had a kind of um, what might look like a bell curve. I started off not liking the book all, all that much and feeling that it was a an example of a kind of literary, very historically contemporary literary obsession with sentence writing and the image that we see in the novel. And We'll get to this later, but Chad Harbach talks about this a little bit, I think, in a recent piece he wrote in um, Slate and N Plus One called MFA versus NYC. But there's a lot of similes right at the very beginning, right? And it's a kind of writing that that draws um, attention to itself on the sentence level. You can, know, I, can I start by digging into the first paragraph here? Yeah. Can I Can I just say, finish my yeah, thought yeah, yeah. and then and then I want you to? But e- so I thought, okay, this is that kind of book, and I totally get why you said hermetic, Michael, because it feels right. But then, actually, what's so strange about this book, or what, what struck me as interesting about the book, is that it actually is a, it's almost like a noir novel, or a kind of like Ross MacDonald, but like there's this weird collision of, there's an intense plot going on in this kind of, you know, two-bit mafioso world happening, people, all sorts of sketchy things happening. And also it has this deeply erotic component, which I think we have to talk about, that then gets abandoned somewhat partway through the book, I I thought. And so it kind of crescendoed for me, and then the very end fell off. That's my overall summary of the book. But but, Troy, dig in. Let's read the first uh, four or five sentences here. Inside the back gate of Indian Mound Downs, a hot walking machine creaked round and round. In the judgment of Medicine Ed, walking a horse himself on the shed row of Barn Z, the going-nowhere contraption must be the lost soul of this cheap racetrack where he'd been ended up at. It was stuck there in the gate, so you couldn't get out. It filled up the whole road between a hill of horse manure against the backside fence, stubbled with pale, dirty straw like a penitentiary haircut, and a long red puddle in the red dirt, a puddle that was almost a pond. I like that puddle quite a bit, and I like the sort of the sense of place and the sort of atmosphere of the novel. There's a lot of red and a lot of dust and a lot of red dust. So it's got that going for it. I think initially I read, I had to reread that that first sentence three times to make sure I was reading, really reading what I thought I was reading with a sort of pile up of assonance there. Inside the back gate of Indian Mount Downs, a hot walking machine creaked round and round, sort of the... There's a kind of really unfortunate sort of sing-songiness to it. A chiminess, yeah. Um, although I do like the hot walking machine in the middle of it. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you're the person here who knows about horses. Can you describe what a hot walking machine is? You know, I excuse me, sorry, I just hit something. I do know about horses, but I don't know that I've actually seen – I don't know that much about horses as this book brought home to me. But uh, I'm not so sure I've seen a hot walking machine. I was imagining – I mean, I think I have. I think that it's like there's a round machine with these arms sticking out and the horse's leads or shanks are attached to it and they're kind of being 
pulled around like a merry-go-round almost so very slowly. But I, I don't know so much. I don't know so and much. Then, and the point of it is that they're kind of – the horse is so sort of worked up after they're a race. They're so worked up. Like, yeah, exactly. They, they can get colic like, and other things if they don't get cooled down. Their bodies um, – they'll drink too much water or they – you know, they, they need to cool down. Even – you know how humans do after they exert themselves but really briefly. But horses need to do it for a longer time. But, you know, I think right in that first sentence we see both the strengths and the flaws of this book or what I took to be the strengths and flaws of this book. You know, Gordon really does have a wonderful sense of language and there were so many bits of this that I, I really enjoyed. It also can get a little a little cute, a little overworked, you know, a little um, like a like a horse that's been ridden too hard, you know, like a little a little overdriven to the wire. Sometimes you feel the the application of the whip. Um, it felt to me. Yeah, but, I think part of the problem with that in the, in this um, in this first chapter, this is a book with multiple narrators, um, each with a distinct voice, and so in this first section here, we're listening to Medicine Ed. Yeah. Um, who's uh, about 70 years old. He's sort of the wise old groom at the racetrack. And so he speaks he, – he's not quite literate, Medicine Ed is. And um, he sort of speaks in this um, amalgam of kind of like down-home uh, figures of speech and is a, a sort of ungrammatical turns of phrase, which sometimes has some color in it. I I I also don't think that this is um, a case in which the uh, are we going to call this a it's, not, it's something like a free indirect style at any rate. Well, yeah, it's it is. I think we can call it free and direct in the most. It's third person, but it's close third person, right? right. Like we can, we're in their minds usually. We're in their consciousness usually. Yeah. Except there is one character who's in the second person, which we should talk about. Indeed. In any event, a problem that I have with Ed is that. Ed, some points he's kind of uh, speaking in dialect and then there are these kind of literary phrases or even like references that kind of work his way awfully close to work their way awfully close to his mouth in a way that's sort of jarring and um, uh, sort of the, the artifice of it sets me set me on edge a bit this is not to and the, uh, this is perhaps tied together with the fact that that medicine ed is he's just a little bit uncomfortable as a character i think mm-hmm. this is this sort of old woolly-headed negro uh, um, sort of working his his magic with the with the horses and actually kind of liter- like there's he has all these powders yeah, that is not right. a metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a metaphor. He's actually working his magic. Because yeah, kind of, they had a bad Faulkner vibe to it, or you know, just yeah, like what you said, like not not really a fully realized consciousness. Like you feel the kind of hand of of Gordon there, you know, uh, in that character in particular. But you know, as we're talking about the kind of flowery edge, you know, the writing is 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 moving along. Um, you know, I, I will say the way the book is structured, you know, just, you know, by horse and, and, and typically, you know, is is this horse that we're kind of introduced to, you know, going to win the race. Um, I mean, that, that kind of basic element was enough to kind of power me through a lot of the kind of, you know, the sort of some of the thick syrup that, that you encounter along the way. Right. Um, and so I, I was curious, um, you know, what you guys made of the, the, the kind of the horses themselves as characters and, you know, because that's... I love yeah, that part. Yeah. I mean, I did think she did the horses really well. I mean, 
I, 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 uh, I bridled a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> I think we have to declare, like, a, you know. <laughs> I think we're at five. Or okay. Something. They're all mine, too, I think. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what's come over me. Um, I objected slightly on page 26. We have, you know, we're sort of getting to know the novel and the characters, and we're, we're in, um, I think, the second chapter, which is, introduces Maggie, who's the young woman who's in some ways at the heart of the book, and, and who I thought was a very interesting character. And actually, I wish that there had been slightly more about her, because I, I really enjoyed the parts with her. But she's got this, she's, um, I think we're meant to believe she comes from a slightly upper class, upper middle class family. I couldn't really tell. At first, it seemed like that, but then her uncle is this guy. Well, she's sort of. Uh, we know that she's a college she's educated. dropout. So right. She's, yeah. she's, she's a not hippie. really in her right. milieu at this right. sort of at this uh, track. Low down, dirty right. racetrack. And we know that she's a hippie. We also know, by the way, it's 1970, which is interesting. That is not a book, right? Set in the contemporary yep. time. So she's a hippie, and she's kind of hanging with the horses. And you have the sense of a bit that she doesn't know. You know, compared to, for example, Medicine Ed, who's fully at home in this world that she's learning her way around the world and she's um walking a horse around who's and he you know we have this description of he curvetted like a colt squealed and cow kicked alarmingly near her groin okay okay she said and handed it over she was glad there was no man around just then to tell her to show that horse who was boss when they were back in the stall and she turned to leave she found he had taken her whole raincoat in his mouth and was chewing it the one she was wearing that's a weird moment. Why do we need to be told the one she was wearing? You know, um, yeah. She twisted around with difficulty and pried it out of his mouth. He eyed her ironically. Just between us, is this the sort of horse act I really ought to discipline, she asked him, smoothing out her coat. I simply incline to your company, he replied. And I thought, oh, no, are we going to get a lot of horse, horses talking, talking horses all the way through the book? But we don't, really. Um, there's not a lot of kind of projection onto the horse. But the horses actually seem like real different characters in their own well, right so i did really like curious part. like I, again like not to keep bringing up your horse knowledge man, mm-hmm. man, but like you know I, the one thing about the book that did strike me was like you know people who spend lots of time with horses i mean there is this kind of uh you know they they do have this kind of an intense characterization at least in the book you know that, that they can you know project a lot I mean, and particularly uh, you, you know your friend medicine ed seems to be able to read a lot into horses and, yeah and, you know i was i thought that part all i thought that was a really strong part of the book like to me the strongest part of the book the thing that gordon really writes well about is the kind of animal instinct like the way like and, and this is i think connected to the erotic strain in the book that she's trying to write about bodies and consciousness that's not on like a super rational Level. Would you guys agree that there's this kind of like fascination with connection that isn't through language um, that seems to run through? Well, that's certainly clear. And like, you know, there's many scenes of like the kind of intense horse massage. I mean, I I didn't know horse massage is just like. Wow, you know that's. We <laughs> forget Rolfing or whatever, you know. It's just like it was like way, yeah. The, these yeah. trainers kind of get like way down in there and, yeah. you know, feel the muscles and the yeah. And it, it's it's very erotic, you know, the way it's talked about and, and described. And you know, it's definitely news to me among other. This is I mean, reminding and, and me actually, of no, we're not discussing the craziest <laughs> moment though, which is when you know one of the horses, the horse gets his balls chopped off, and um, oh, yeah. you know, which. which you know, I'm squeamish, dude. And, <laughs> and but I have to say, like, I thought it was extremely well written. Like, I was like, That's how are you going to handle the the you know this? And right, and right. I don't know if we can find that. If we, yeah. Um, 
That was a really, I thought it was a really good. Eating lunch while they're listening to this. But But that was a passage where I thought, you know, okay, one of the virtues of this book does seem to be the the author's kind of close observation of the world, right? And that they, and what feels that Jamie Gordon really knows the world she's writing about. And that can get fetishized. That could be kind of overdone. Mm. But I thought that was something that um, most of all worked worked really well. My hesitations about the book, I think, are lie on the level of this this sort of the prose shading toward purple, as, as Troy was saying, and then some plot issues and other moments. But Troy, what did you... Well, I suppose we had to do the listener a favor. Yes. Of, the favor of uh, sort of sketching out what the plot is. is yeah. I think <laughs> the book is kind of loosely plotted. This isn't... Yeah. It, in, in sort of rhythm and pace, it feels a bit more like a story cycle than like a novel, I think. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I think and I get that sense partly because of the multiple narrators, partly because I suppose we're, we're on a journey. If the book is anyone's journey, it's that of Maggie, but even she's not um, sort of like fully in focus yes. all the time. And she's on stage, you know, maybe and- a third of the time. Do you think that has to do with the prose style, that the way that, that we're in this third person, this close third person, but there's... Did you feel that the style was obscuring the characterization? Mm. No. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a good question. It's certainly obscuring something. Or, well, yeah. it's a good question unless I reject the question. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. <laughs> Where are we trying to head here? Um we were going to actually tell people the plot. That was okay. Right. Yes. That was, our that was where we're going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're at this crappy little racetrack. Uh, there are these new people in town. There's Maggie and her sort of boyfriend and employer, Tommy. Right. Uh, and he's this sort of slickster dressed as a dude. He is coming in with some horses trying to like, get in, get out fast, and make some money. The fates have other ideas about this, as do sort of the... Uh, local folk in organized crime. And so there are these sort of scrappy little alliances form, horses race, races get won and lost, these horses trade hands. These are, what we're largely talking about here are claiming races, which I didn't know anything about until reading the epigraph to this book, which explains that, you know, there, there are these races you can run, you enter your horse, but anyone else who's entered a horse can buy the horse, which is a way of... Uh, I suppose making the races more equitable. Yes. Yes, it basically prevents owners who have really good horses from racing those horses against the kind of third or fourth tier horses that you know, and making a quick. Because if you put your good horse, because if you put your good horse in, the way it works is you don't. It's not like you buy it for any price. There's a fixed. I I think the claimer, like that's like a two thousand dollar claimer. That's what Mm -hmm. they're talking about. You buy the horse for two thousand dollars. Everyone, everyone's valued at the same amount. I think is how it works. So you're like, oh, I want to win this race. So you wouldn't take secretariat and be like. You know, or you wouldn't take like Uncle Mo, this year's great two-year-old, and be like, "I'm going to run him in this claimer and make you know a bunch of money." I mean, you wouldn't do it anyway with good horses because they break down. Da-da. You want the prestige and the purse and the money. But let's so so let's say the middle-tier horses that are pretty good that would definitely beat out the claimers. You wouldn't, right? You wouldn't want to do that. Okay, does that make sense? Yes. Right. So that's what he's strategizing constantly. A lot of the book is about like not wanting to claim, wanting to avoid the horse getting claimed. Right. And sort of, and meanwhile the. The Horse from a Witch, the book takes its title, Lord of Misrule, doesn't show up until the sort of the fourth and final section of it. He's mentioned early on. Uh, he's sort of coming to this. He's 
a once noble horse is, hasn't quite been put out to pasture in Nebraska. He's been laying low and he's going to uh, sort of run a special race here at Indian Mound Downs because a guy at the racetrack is doing a favor for a loan shark who also, as it happens, is um, sort of the great uncle of Maggie and is kind of keeping tabs on her and trying to keep an eye out for her. These facts are not related and I think um, – you know, I think this is also a problem with with um, sort of the way the book is set up. Is that this Lord of Misrule doesn't have anything to do with the first seventy percent of the book, and he's coming in. Uh, it's not quite a Deus Ex Machina situation, but um, it's a bit random. As random as fate itself is, <laughs> and luck itself, uh, which I guess is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let me tell you what I thought, which is that I thought, well, where is this Lord of Misrule? Because he, he's invoked early on, but he doesn't show up. So I have two questions for you. Rather than tell you what I thought, let me ask. I mean, to what degree, when, when Lord of Misrule does show up, he's this kind of satanic force, right? He, he's being described as the devil. And there's all, this, there's all this talk about, you know, and obviously Misrule, chaos, things being turned upside down. The Lord of Misrule is, you know, upending um, social conventions. There's a bunch of description of Maggie as being unruly in a kind of in- sexual encounter she has with Tommy. And it's one of Tommy's chapters where he's narrated in this second person, the you. And so he's kind of thinking and he keeps describing her unruliness. So I thought for a long time, okay, Tommy and Maggie have this kind of violent sexual relationship and it seemed like he was the Lord of Misrule and the the book was going to move to some precipitating encounter between them. Did that encounter come? Did you have that impression? And also, to what degree do you think this is actually supposed to in some ways be a book about spirituality? Is this book supposed to be about spirituality and moral order? Or not at all? Yeah, I mean, I I guess there's a little bit of that there because, you know, like the thing about Lord of Misrule is, you know, he's this horse who is kind of... I don't know if that's the right word, sort of hopped up on butte or something. You know, there's sort of like this notion that he's like, he doesn't feel any pain. He's kind of a kind of chemical, chemically enhanced, um, you know, but also has this sort of, you know, killer horse instinct that all horses lacked and that not all horses have. And and so um, I felt that was, that's very much in contrast to kind of what Maggie was kind of doing, right? I mean, she was sort of kind of going the earth mother route with the horses, like kind of sleeping in the in the the barns with them and and you know trying to to make them winners and then kind of to intuit their their feelings and emotions and but i think i think the second part of your question is yeah i mean the 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 you know she is unruly described as unruly and she has this relationship with tommy but that but he kind of drops out as a character in this really in a way that is disappointing in the book um you know they're often described as he thinks of her as her twin. Maybe we can discuss mm-hmm. their relationship a little bit as, as much as we I know, can I'm realizing it. I cut Troy's summary of the plot yeah, off because yeah. I got so excited about yeah. the Lord of Misrule. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually you know, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like one of these books where there's a lot, everything's kind of echoing throughout and, you know, it's obviously been, the text has been deeply massaged and, you know, we can't pin anything down. But uh, but anyway, go on. So Tommy and Maggie as twins, their love, their relationship. and Yeah, uh, it's this kind of um, sadomasochistic thing going on and there are metaphors for fullness and fulfillment. The, the sort of metaphors and this way of writing about sex that really should not be tried at home 
<laughs> unless unless you're Mary Gateskill, I think. Sure. <laughs> um, it, it, it's kind of um, there's some some uh, real uh, contenders for the bad sex and literature yeah. award in here. Should I, shall I try to find one? Oh, yes. I think I have my, a passage here. Fall- he please. ran his fingers up inside her, milked the shameless wetness of her. Oh, yeah. That's actually not that's one of the, notably. That's one that's, of the <laughs> calmer ones. But why is it important that she be so, you know, Maggie, you know, why do you think the decision was made to portray her that way, this kind of submissive yet willing? I mean, you know, it's sort of... Well, I mean... I guess the book is, in a sense, uh, a sort of coming-of-age story or the story of her liberation. Not that it's 100 percent coherent as such, but I think the sort of the, the trend in things is um, uh, has to do with her sort of coming into her own and um, being her own woman as opposed to a pawn or a possession. And I think – witnessing real pain right that there's this there's this manufactured pain in the relationship with Tommy and there's a line on page 97 where she's they're having this Tommy is thinking about her and he says the little key was pain which turned the lock of every pleasure and that kind of idea kept coming up and again I I kept waiting because it is a novel you know I kept waiting for the themes to get pulled out and connected a bit and Troy, I think the way in which it really does feel like a story cycle in the end is that never quite happens, you know, not on the level of plot, not on the level of theme. Like there's a lot of loose ends or things that just don't quite, you know, speaking of a lock image, like that just don't quite click into place. But I think we're supposed to feel that she's kind of witnessing something that she's sort of slumming a bit and then she witnesses some some real loss that happens through the form of these horses um, and what happens to them over the course of a year. And then kind of leaves it all behind yeah yeah right i mean yeah no she but gets it's, away. Yeah, it's a yeah. funny combination of of having things that are just incredibly well realized and having things that you're just like what oh. <laughs> you know i mean did you guys have this reaction yeah, I, was, like I, was, I was like what did i did i miss something here you know like tommy just kind of like disappears like all of a sudden he's like sleeping with someone else and like their relationship they're not having sex and i'm just like okay it feels like you're just cramming this all in like you know on exam kind of like getting us up moving us forward in in your plot but not really persuasively so Oh. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then you know, minor spoiler, but yeah, Tommy very much is sort of, you know, this kind of con man, charismatic, you know, woman slayer. You know, this kind of becomes crazy, and 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 I didn't understand, I didn't see that you know progression at all. I mean, he sort of what was it like? The horses started working on him, or it was the, the kind of the whole like tracks, or yeah, the, yeah or dry. <laughs> sure, well, I mean. <laughs> He gets but, paranoid. <laughs> yeah. There's no one, with with the possible exception of Maggie. There's these characters don't really sort of develop. They just kind of happen yeah. along, yeah. and then they they may respond to. Now here's my question, which is, which sounds simple but might be tricky. Is like, did, did any of this feel real to you? Like, meaning like this is a reality based novel, or is it? <laughs> or is it uh, you know, we're just looking at some nice, awesome wood carving, you know, or. Like like a, I believe in the track itself. Like yeah. as I, 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 I like the good sort of vivid sense of place that I get, and there are these sort of like flashes of um, of imagery or metaphor that make me feel like I have some understanding of a place. The people 
I don't quite buy. The horses and the dog, I I'm, feel okay about. You can hear the horse's footsteps. <laughs> you know, I I don't think it actually feels very real. But, Michael, I'm not sure it's supposed – you know, to yeah. me, I thought – I don't think this book is supposed to. It felt like to me what it wanted to be was this kind of like narcotic dream. I mean that's the sadomasochism mm-hmm. too, right? It's like you're entering this sort of other world. And I think though – and that's fine. You know, that would be fine with me. The, the, the But – I think the problem has to do with the fragmented characters. I think the fact that we have five characters we're following, and most of them, as Troy was saying, I totally agree. With the exception of Maggie, they're just not developed. They just kind of happen along. And so you sort of move into their minds as if just to be shown that that one can. And I guess it does solve some problems for Gordon about, you know, fleshing out the track and kind of giving you a perspective that Maggie couldn't couldn't have. But because there are so many, that question of reality became more pressing because we want to know why are we moving into all of their minds and why are all their minds kind of like this, kind of sleepy and druggy and and ner- shot through with strange moments of intensity. The right. the book that you know I was trying to think what does this remind me of and I don't know if you guys have have you guys ever read Kate Braverman. She's this interesting female novelist who also writes very, very physically and also kind of erotically about these like women who are obsessed with sort of violent men or men who have them kind of under their control a little bit. And um, she wrote a book called Lithium for Medea that is also really problematic, but that I like a lot and share some things in common with this. And but it's I think that book is probably ultimately more successful in some ways because it's really just in this woman's mind, right? It's all about her kind of. What's, it's a first-person narrative, and it's what's happening to her as she has this relationship with this guy, Jason, and her father is dying. The problem with that book is it has no plot. So this book has plot that moves you along, but it, it has this weird – it ends up feeling kind of like a kind of like marzipan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's too – it gets hokey to move into Medicine Ed's head and have him be thinking – I don't know. Everyone feels sort of dr- drugged and disconnected from – um, event. Yeah, and then, but maybe that's how life is. <laughs> what did you think? <laughs> what did you think, Michael? I just it I'm not horsey really. enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I just felt like there was like a horse horse mind thing going on here that like I wasn't I wasn't I I couldn't like there's yeah. like a kind of a stream of this book that I couldn't. Yeah, you know, jump into what? Um, maybe we could frame the question this way. I mean, I, I'm wondering. I wish had anyone read Jane Smiley's book about horse heaven. Did anyone read that novel? Because I think there's a lot of being in the horses' minds. But what? What do we think? Why do you think this book won the National Book Award? Should we? Should we ask that? Uh, <laughs> While reading it, did you? Think. I mean, because it's interesting, right? This book beat out John- Jonathan Franzen's Freedom, Nicole Krause's Great. Well, I mean, Franzen wasn't nominated, right? But no, let's just say, like, were, but it beat right. out in the. Let's good to clarify, beat out in the well, sense of winner. You know, a book that's like. But yes, know, Franzen was not nominated. Um, is it as successful as a fictional? You know, as a sort of most best example of a, a work that, you know, fulfills its destiny as a, a fictional creation or, or, or you know are we or to use the Franzen model does it somehow sort of have to you know gesture at larger themes in American culture or world culture that that make it a, a particularly relevant and you know a winner this year I mean isn't that isn't that the distinction here is like this you know the judges must have felt that this was just kind of a, a, a beautiful work of art and, and you know I wasn't getting an overly 
uh, at least I didn't pick up a strong sense of you know how this kind of you know comments on our, our world today. No, right. It's I mean, not. It's yeah, not a social novel. Yeah. yeah, it's it's more of a kind of lyrical novel about this about this world. So yes, it definitely seems like that. Um, but what's your uh, what are your guys' takes and why one? But what, I guess what are the virtues of it as the kind of novel it is? Would you recommend this to any of our listeners or no? <laughs> Would I recommend this to any of our listeners? You know, life is short. There are a lot of books to read, <laughs> and there are a lot of a lot of books published by um, small presses worth reading. Is it possible if I'm going to project myself into the minds of Samuel Delaney and whoever else was on this, right. this jury? Is that there, there is a way in which it's um, sort of a, a vote of confidence in the small press and the uh, sort of continued prospects thereof, and that's. Fine, that's worthy. Yeah, yeah. That must. I think that must be what it is. I mean, I think. I think one thing, as I was reading this and comparing it to other novels I did or didn't read this year, that were certainly got more attention in the press. Right. I. I thought one thing I. I liked about this novel. I could imagine being finding very appealing is that it doesn't. I mean, you touched on this, Michael, but it doesn't explain everything for you. It kind of makes you move into its world. And actually that, you know, there are a lot of novels right now that go into a very explanatory mode. You're not having to do a lot of work on the level of trying to understand the language and and kind of um, adapt to its language. The language is always adapting to us rather than the reader having to adapt to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, certainly. So I, I mean, kind of like that about Yeah, this no, you I mentioned the, the Harbach essay, the MFA versus NYC, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, he sort of talks about how the he puts forth this idea that the marketplace has, like, you know, worked itself into the kind of subconscious of the the fiction writer. You know, they, there's, you're always, even when you're not, you're, you're always sort of framing your writing for, a, you know, a potential reader, and and I guess... This book doesn't have that feel at all, you know. I, I mean, not that it was written in, entirely for Jamie Gordon, but it, was, it, it feels very much like, you know, I'm going to outline the limits of this this world and, and fill it in for my, you know, my creative impulse. Right. Um, it does have a yeah. real sort of like density to it. Mm-hmm. I think I've been sitting here slagging on this on this novel, in which there is more than a little bit to appreciate for every god-awful sentence there's you know one striking powerful one density is the note that i've made here (laughs) density is good i mean i think you know what's hard for me to kind of get in there and recommend the novel enthusiastically is i do feel like a novel like this depends to some degree on the characters right you're i mean the language is so there's some bad sentences there's a lot of good sentences it's not the kind of style i prefer i prefer a slightly sparer starker style but I can go there, you know, and, right. and there's enough that's going on that's interesting. There's enough of those non-chimey sentences that I, I, I really did kind of go into that world. But I just wanted more from the characters. Like I just wanted to have more of a sense of that I wasn't just sort of stopping a while with them, that I was actually seeing something shift and take place. And that and that does happen for, for Maggie. But it, I guess I guess this is maybe the difficulty of writing. You know, Troy, you kept bringing up the word fate, and that does seem like a really important word here. And, and um, certainly, the title suggests that too, right? That there's this kind of these forces at work, and there is. It's about the track. I mean, there is something non-narrative about the track, right? It's like there's you know horses run. There's a lot of luck. Um, there's a lot of in- superstition. There's a lot of investment of hope and meaning in something that is fundamentally perhaps 
completely fungible. Yeah, maybe that's how you respond you know? to this sort of notion that, yeah, because that's definitely throughout the book, you know, the, the larger things tugging at our, our destinies. And, 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 but maybe that, yeah, because I, I feel like you, maybe that's not satisfying for a reader. You know, yeah. sort of, you know, fate isn't a good main character. Um, I mean, the, the other, I think, kind of main characters of the book are the horses. And it, it struck me that this is, you know, a novel that PETA, you know, might get give a stamp of approval to. Because in some ways, I thought, for all the love of racing and the love of horses, there's a real critique and condemnation of the transactional nature of horse racing and what it really is. Did you guys get that reading it? Uh, what did you get? I'm curious, as people who don't, you know have the sentimental relationship to horse racing that idea. Um, hmm. Huh. No? Can I sit here and hmm and huh? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> no. I don't... Well, I don't think there's anything... Uh, this doesn't really condemn horse racing. No. And... But the great horse uh, that they love dies. <laughs> yeah, but I think the the book is also here to say that this is the way of all flesh. True. Um, True. I, I, you know, I liked how it sort of, as a non-horse person, I guess I just kind of liked, you know, horses are horses, and the way it kind of you know, made them individuals, and kind of, you know, showed how to fine-tune them for a race, and you know, I, you know, I had I've had friends who have become obsessed with horse racing, and you know, become part owners of horses and things, and I, it was a enthusiasm more than enthusiasm that I never really understood. But now, I, you know, it's kind of starting to see it. You know, so you have this kind of, um, you know, you have the bloodlines and you're very curious about, like, what traits emerged in the, the grandson of speculation, I guess, mm-hmm. is you know, one of the horses in this book. And, and so I was kind of, I was starting to get a sense of that how, um, you know, yeah, just like by looking at a horse, you know, someone with knowledge, you know, the horse will just kind of tell you a whole story and, and uh you know, yeah, I put some money down, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I thought that was really, and you asked before about the horses, and I said I like that. But it was not just the horses I like. There's a, there's a passage where Maggie is rubbing, again, kind of horse massage, right, rubbing yeah. down one of the horses, and she thinks about how she could kind of give herself over to this much time spent doing these kind of meditative, mindless things. And it's a really beautiful passage and there's a lot of moments like that where someone says, like, I'll rub the horse till you see their, like, dapple shine. And there's a lot of stuff about the physicality of horses and I think one of the things the book does really well is summon the ways in which having an incredibly focused task gives you a sense of meaning and immersion and it it just conjures that in the way that fiction can I think really really beautifully one question I think I have to ask is what about the fact that one of the key horses' name is um, Little Spinoza And, and in other places Bertrand Russell is referred to the horse, one of the horse's grandfathers is speculation. It feels like there's all these little allusions, many of them philosophical ones. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that or had noticed that. Yeah, I mean, I was down in the red puddle. I don't know. I don't know my. I don't know my Spinoza. <laughs> but yeah, Troy I, I started to to look things up and think on all that for a spell, and then had this. Um, Instinctive realization that that was not going to pay dividends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I set that all aside. I want to back up and say it occurs to me sitting here. I think one thing that the book does do nicely is to um, kind of conjure up a sort of a mental atmosphere around the track. What you were talking about before is this kind of like druggy sensation 
I think also has to do maybe with um, what if we call this book's genre sort of like magical thinking realism mm-hmm. because there's a way in which if you're, if you're involved in horses and the racetrack even if you sort of say that you don't believe in luck and do not practice magic as medicine ed does they're still because you're dealing with these like living animals uh, these living beings uh, these spirits that um, I, I, th- I think a, a kind of um, daydreamy not strictly logical way of looking at the world can sort of creep over things and that the book gets at that mm-hmm. yeah I think absolutely there's also like when some medicine ed um, you know mixes up this special powder for the horses called goofer and um, you know one of the details in the book is like he has you're, you're I'm going to get it a little bit wrong but it's like sort of your mind has to be in earnest or you have to be in earnest while you're while you're mixing this up and you know when I was reading that that sort of it sort of struck me as a way to kind of approach the whole the whole novel. It's just like you kind of have to <laughs> have this sort of open, believable, you know, mind um, kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's like interested it. in sort of uh, methods of concentration that aren't mm-hmm. strictly intellectual. In fact, not really intellectual in any way, almost. Right. And you're right, Trey, because there's this theme or thread running through the book about science versus kind of um, hopefulness or, you know, sentimentality, you know, of some people trying to practice science and other people just trying to practice kind of love almost, you know. And yeah, and like very, like in your, in your livelihood is on the line too. It's not just idle. I mean, you see, it's like, you know, people, they place their, you know, the people who work at the track or Maggie, you know, they put bets down on, the, on their horses. Um, yeah. And, you know. That really comes and through. And you know, that's how they, they live. <laughs> I love this um, magical real magical thinking realism because I I think that is what it is. I kept thinking it's not quite noir, it's not neo realism, but there is it kind of feels like it wants to have this gritty element, but it's not really gritty. It is it's kind of magical thinking realism is the no it's the category. It is squalid. Yes, it is squalid, but it's got a kind of I don't know like a kind of beauty too, right? A kind of. Partly because of the style of the writing. There's an incredible physicality, I guess, to everything. Well, I feel that maybe we've said everything we have to say mm-hmm. about this this book. Is there anything else we would add for our undecided listeners? Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to kvetch, not for the first time, about books that don't have quotation marks. Uh, I yes. suppose if you're a British novelist and you're using M dashes to denote dialogue, then that is one thing. But I, I, I just uh, I think you have to. Yeah, was it just you have to? The dialogue wasn't clear enough, or you just felt like it didn't meld. Well, it it's melted into one. It's it's just a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. I suppose I I uh, I suppose you can't quite blame a novelist because it, it requires the reader to just uh, concentrate an extra one percent uh, harder on what's happening. And if you want a, sort of a certain kind of attention paid to the page, then I guess that's one way to get it with a little bit of a cheat. Am I, am I being a, like a grumpy old man about this? You know, it's interesting. So I actually just read all the Pretty Horses again, and which is funny actually. When you were talking about the ero- when we were talking about the erotic before, <laughs> Michael, and you were going on about the horse massage, it was reminding me of that scene in Kicking and Screaming, the Noah Baumbach film, where they're having the book club about all the pretty horses and. 
or maybe it's Blood Meridian. I can't remember. It's one Cormac McCarthy novel. I think it's all the pretty horses, and one of the characters hasn't read it, and he's reading the back, and he's like, yes, it's the horses, and the very erotic. <laughs> you know? I was like, you didn't read this, did you? Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, in that novel, I was totally persuaded by the absence of quotation marks. In this novel, as in several other novels I've read, I sometimes feel like it's like... You know, when you're in college and you wear bell bottoms to signify something, right? You know what I mean? Like it felt, right. it feels like a, <laughs> it's like a outerwear choice. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's mean, but it just feels like it's a liter, it's a signifier. I belong to a certain kind of literary club, yeah. and as such, I don't feel strongly about it one way or the other. Except that that's what it feels like to me more than anything else. Period. Period. Yeah. Okay, well, should we end on anything else other than uh, quotations, quotation marks? Any other last thoughts, reservations? I think, I think we said it. I think, I think so. we said it. I, okay. it it's mm-hmm. like there's no um, – none of us are ardent defenders of this novel, but – Yeah, it was a ride that the, uh, that the judges sent us on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I'll remember this book. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I read it. I don't know that it would have been the book I would have chosen for the for the year, but I'm not sorry to see, um, you know, a book of with this level of writing and interest in a, a, a microcosm, you know, be be the word. I mean, I also felt like in a way it was a sort of signal that there was a class element to it that I liked. Right, that it was like we're going to show you a part of America that maybe you don't see all that much. And and also this is very much I think a book of place. It is. I'm interested in that. Well, this is a separate Place discussion the about the, the sort of the class element. Yeah. Of, I mean, it's. I wonder if it's it's possible for a certain kind of reader to fetishize a certain kind of book because it's of its sort of yeah dirty, dirty blue collar. Um, well, I do think that's going on. Ambiance. It's uh, uh, whatever. <laughs> I do think some of that's going on. Well. On that note, maybe we'll just say we're all glad to have read The Lord of Misrule, or just Lord of Misrule. And um, thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to coming back in a future date. Firstlate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke.